Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. He is risen. Truly, he is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Brothers and sisters in Christ, a two-man card, Jess Romero, Paul Clay, the month of, of, of April, is dedicated to two things, to the Holy Eucharist, devotion to the Holy Spirit, and also this tradition has developed because Easter Sunday often falls in April. And so, as Catholics, Easter Sunday is the greatest, highest, holy day in Christianity. This is, this is the game changer. This is where all, I mean, all the marbles are put out of the table. Because as St. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. Everything, the capstone, the archstone of Christianity, the apex is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything else uh, plays second fiddle to the resurrection. Because again, the resurrection gives meaning and power to everything in the Catholic faith. Paul? How are you, my friend? Amen, brother. <laughs> uh, a hearty amen to that. <laughs> I mean, think about this, Paul. There's only three views of the afterlife. I tell secular humanists and my friends that are non-believers are nuns. I say, okay, mm -hmm. there's three doors when you die. Door number one is reincarnation. Okay. Uh, <laughs> door number two is there's nothing. You vanish. You cease to exist. Uh, you, uh, you, 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 you vanish completely mind bodies everything you see and number annihilation three, <laughs> annihilation and number three the resurrection of jesus christ there's only three doors in the afterlife all eight billion people on planet earth you either believe in a door a reincarnation door b uh annihilation and and a complete extinction and vanquishing or c the resurrection based on the promises of jesus christ that's it paul there's mm. all 8 billion people on planet earth are going to believe in one of three doors. So this is a huge topic. <clears throat> we want to talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. <clears throat> I want to just jump right into this article where it says, <clears throat> um, the overwhelming consensus of scholars is that the religious figure known as Jesus Christ was an actual historical person. Not only the gospels, but also the early historians that non-Christians trust discuss Jesus during his time here on earth. These historians, while they do not talk extensively about the ministry and teachings of Jesus, do corroborate many of the historical facts that the Gospels purport to convey. For example, Tacitus, a historian, Pliny the Younger, another historian, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, the Babylonian Talmud, <clears throat> and Lucian, and many others mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus as well as the Christians who followed his teachings. Here's the first point. While the crucifixion of a condemned criminal would not be unusual in the time of Christ, a resurrection would be. That's an important point to make. Mm -hmm. Because of the nearly ironclad case for the historical accuracy of the crucifixion, in this article, we're going to present that the best modern evidence for proving historical accuracy of the resurrection narratives. So how is one to understand the biblical narratives of the resurrection? 
The Bible is a book that can be divided into seven major genres, narrative, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, gospels, epistle, and apocalypse. Some of these could be further subdivided. For example, the book of Genesis is mostly narrative history, but one can make strong arguments that the creation story would be considered mytho-history, in other words, sacred history. Point number three, thus we have the real, <clears throat> the real, the very real command to keep holy the Sabbath day <clears throat> precedent in the creation story by, by God's rest. <clears throat> but let's go to point number four. This is what was important. The Gospels are a completely different category altogether in the Bible. According to scholar Mal Lorenz, they're not simply a narrative or a biographical work, but rather a proclamation. Unlike most of the other books of the Bible, the Gospels were actually written either by eyewitnesses or those who knew and worked with them. That alone puts them on a whole new level there are three markers by which we can test whether the Gospels ought to be taken literally. Paul, you want to share that with the audience? Yes. Number one, they have a history of composition. Point number two, they're set in a specific historical context. And point number three, they are meant to convey historically accurate information. The Gospels were not the first ever written material about the life and death of Jesus. In fact, in a passage to which we shall return in a moment, Paul recounts his resurrection narrative using what scholars believe is an older formula, AD 30 to 35, handed down to him. Mark's gospel was written first, with Matthew and Luke to follow. These three are called the synoptic gospels, a term used because of their similar perspectives on Jesus' ministry. The Gospel of John is written in a different way, meant to convey deeper theological truths. Amen. John was a mystic. Yeah. Um, good. Continue. Continue. Yes. How can we be sure, to, uh, though, that the Gospels are historically accurate? Author Craig Keener provides four good reasons to believe this. First, most scholars today recognize the Gospels are ancient biographies. They are written in the same manner as ancient biographies like Lucian and, and Josephus. This is also an important defense against skeptics. Some will argue that the discrepancies of facts between the same stories in different Gospels are proof of their inaccuracy. However, we must be fair to the authors and look at these texts through the lens of, of the time and cultural context in which they were written. Similar to John's sentiments, Lucian writes, these are a very few things out of the many which I might have mentioned, but they will suffice to give my readers a notion of the sort of man he was. It seems reasonable to believe then that the gospels fit into the historical narratives of their times. However, it's not only on literary similarities that we base belief in the Gospels. Many ancient histories and biographies were written many years or sometimes even a few centuries after the events and people they speak about. This is not the case with the Gospels. Much of the scholarship concludes that the Synoptic Gospels were composed before the death of St. Peter and St. Paul in the year 65 AD 
and that the Gospel of John was composed around 97, about, I mean, excuse me, 90 AD, contrast that to such an important figure as Alexander the Great, who conquered much of the known world in his lifetime, but died in, <clears throat> but died in India in 323 BC. His biography was not written until the decade 31 and 41 AD <clears throat> by Curtius Rufus. That is a much more significant amount of time between the events and the writings than the Gospels. In, <clears throat> in cases like these, one would naturally expect legends and inadvertent falsehoods to creep in. But it cannot be proven that this happened with the Gospels. Go ahead, Paul. Another objection against the biblical narratives is that they were written by Christians and thus are biased. There are a number of ways to refute this. First, Paul's testimony is stronger than that of neutral witnesses of the risen of a neutral witness of the risen Christ, Jesus. Since his bias ran in the opposite direction, according to Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul or Saul, as he was then known, was one of the fiercest persecutors of the early Christians until a conversion experience turned him into one of the fiercest defenders of the faith. N.T. Wright explains, it must be asserted most strongly that to discover that a particular writer has a bias tells us nothing, whatever about the value of the information he or she presents. It merely bids us beware, be aware of the bias and of our own, for that matter, and to assess the material according to as many sources as we can. Thus, those who argue that the gospel narratives are biased commit one of two logical fallacies, the genetic fallacy or the ad hominem fallacy. Now that the historical accuracy and veracity of the gospels has been established, we can move to a discussion of the most amazing story in them, the resurrection of Jesus after his crucifixion. What is the importance of the resurrection? St. Paul writes, and it and if Christ be not risen again, then in then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also in vain. That's at 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Many misunderstand the meaning of the resurrection, and it is important to remove these misunderstandings from consideration right away. First, it is evident from the narratives that the resurrected Christ was not a ghost. Peter Kreef and Ronald Teselli put this into logical form. A ghost is a spirit without a body. The resurrected Jesus has a real body. Therefore, the resurrected Jesus is not a ghost. Yes, right. The tomb was empty. Mm -hmm. They continue that Jesus' resurrection is a completely singular event, different from any other gospel accounts of people being raised from the dead. After all, these are resuscitations. And people like Lazarus and the per and the son of the widow of Nain and, and Jairus' daughter died again after being raised. Some of the objections and misunderstandings covered by Crete and Teselli are not worth reproducing due to their lack of uh, academic rigor. Jesus 911. We'll continue. Yeah. We'll pick it up. Got a, I got a couple of parting statements to make, then we'll go on to another topic. Stick around, don't yeah. go anywhere. We'll continue talking about the resurrection. Now, back to Jesus 911. 
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> There's a, the, the, the centurion who's in charge of 100 soldiers, by the way, so he's a shot caller in the Roman Legion. The one, the centurion that stabbed Jesus Christ in the side, his name was Longinus. We now call him Saint Longinus because he had a conversion. And uh, this is an old ancient tradition that's written down that comes from the Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. That's a beautiful thing about the Catholic Church. It has tentacles around the world where we can access the tradition of the church that Protestants can't. They don't have mm-hmm. access to any of this. Because they read the Bible alone, and that's it. They're going to they're gonna make their, their, their gonna compilations from Scripture. But there's so many other things that happened at, at the time when the Bible was being written that you could only know if you're a Catholic or an Orthodox. Here's one story. St. Longinus was the soldier who stabbed Jesus in the side. He's the one that said in Matthew 27, 54, truly this was the Son of God. By the way, he said it in Latin, so... For those of you that are wondering, that was the first Latin Mass, okay? St. Longinus Mm -hmm. spoke in Latin, praised Jesus in Latin, was on his knees as Christ was dying. Well, that's the Mass. Mass is Mm -hmm. the representation, the once and full representation of Calvary uh, in the eternal now of of, of present of time. So, Longinus was in command of the Roman soldiers who presided over the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on Golgotha. He's a centurion who pierced Christ's side with a spear in order to confirm his death. After which the wound discharged a rush of blood and water that, that, that jettisoned out of the side of Christ and it hit Longinus in the face. Now, John Son- Longinus, most people don't know, he had an eye infection. When the blood of Jesus hit his eye, it healed him. Uh, he was going blind. Now, Longinus played a major role in helping to establish the truth about Christ's resurrection. This is pivotal right here, Catholics. Mm-hmm. The Jewish elders we know from the Bible, they, the, the ones who had ordered the death of Jesus, they bribed the Roman soldiers to spread the lie that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body under the cover of darkness and that they had made off with it. Well, guess what? St. Longinus ruined their devious plans because Hmm. they approached him and they asked him to accept the bribe and to say that Christ's body had been stolen. Well, instead, Longinus began telling the world and the Jews the true story of how Christ's body had risen into, into the glory of the resurrection and he was an eyewitness. Since Longinus, the soldier, wanted no part of this Jewish conspiracy or their money, the Jews decided they would simply murder this truth-telling Roman centurion in cold blood. And so, the soldier, Longinus, was a man of courage and integrity, and as soon as he heard about the plot to kill him, he took off his military garb, he underwent Catholic baptism with several fellow soldiers, and then hurried off to Cappadocia, he was now a Catholic Christian. But the treacherous Jews were not finished with him. They convinced Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, under the emperor Tiberius Caesar, 
to issue a strict order to his troops to find Longinus, this Christian centurion, and behead him immediately. St. Longinus was arrested. He prepared himself for his execution by praying throughout the night and then clothing himself in spotlessly white burial garb. The Roman soldiers protested his execution because of his noble character, his honesty and courage. But in the end, St. Longinus and two fellow soldiers who had converted to Christianity and had stood with him at the foot of the cross were taken to Jerusalem and beheaded. And the centurion's destiny as a martyr for Jesus Christ was fulfilled. The story of this Roman soldier is very ancient in the Middle East. He's the one who participated in killing Jesus Christ and was then martyred himself as, uh, on as a treasured story that there is forgiveness of sins for every sinner at the foot of the cross. St. Longinus, pray for us. Amen. Yes, that is a fantastic story. You know, uh, again, uh, we see this extraordinary grace of Jesus, even with uh, St. Dismas, the other thief on the cross, that Jesus, uh, his love and his desire to save knows no bounds. You know, Jess, it... Uh, uh, what an encouraging story and what a, uh, a, a it's also enlightening because it shows you the politics of the day mm. and that 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 the Jews and the hierarchy of the Jews, you know, could be in cahoots with Rome uh, and, and they would offer up somebody for the sake of so-called peace, these false pieces that the world offers you know well if you you know we you know we have this province over there that causes us a lot of problems but you know so we have this we have this one um centurion who just didn't cooperate he didn't cooperate with uh you know the fact that you caesar you know or you know you know and your your power you know has ordained that this christ uh, this so-called christ should die uh you know uh and he and 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 this soldier that you sent now is uh you know is basically, uh, you know, has has switched sides, has flip flopped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what you got. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, yeah. and this sto this story also from Saint Longinus from Christian history, from well documented sources, it it shows you John twenty one twenty five how true that is, where the Bible says Jesus did many other things that they were all written down. I suppose the world could not contain the books that would be written. There's so much. Because of Catholic history and the fathers of the church and the historians, you know, like Josephus and Lucius and, and many others, we, there's so much more that we know that makes the gospel, it, uh, it gives it more, uh, it gives it more context. Yeah. Again, because when you read this story of the gospel, you say, okay, a soldier stabbed him in the side. I wonder what happened to that soldier. Well, when you go to history, the soldier had an eye problem. He had an eye infection. He was going blind. The blood of Jesus splashed on his face. He was healed completely when the blood touched his eyes. And yeah. uh, he's the one that went on to see the risen Christ, him and two other fellow soldiers that, that were there at the foot of the cross. The Jews say, hey, you can't be telling people he's alive. We'll pay you whatever you guys want. They said, we're not taking any bribe. And then the, the Jews had the, their own bosses kill them. Uh, yeah, the, the, stolen, the stolen body theory... It's something that was, it was made up by the Jews. It's even in the Bible. Yeah. 
in, in, yeah. in Matthew 28, verses 1 to 15, look at where it says here in verse 13 and 14 and 15. It says, they assembled with the elders and took counsel. Then they took, gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him while you were asleep. And if this gets mm-hmm. to the ears of the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. The soldiers, so these are some other soldiers, took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has circulated among the Jews to the present day. This is called the stolen body theory that the, that the unbelieving Jews, I would call the synagogue of Satan, made up in the first century. And Matthew's gospel shows that this cover of theory was a lie. Matthew reports yeah. that the soldiers were bribed by the Jewish priests and elders in order to keep the truth of the resurrection a secret, and the soldiers were told what to say, except Longinus. He didn't take the bribe. And so, again, the question is, how could the soldiers know that the, that the disciples stole the body if they were all sleeping? And here's another point I would make. The enemies of Jesus Christ, the synagogue of Satan, they took several steps to prevent the disciples from stealing the body. The Romans did. Think about this. They sealed the stone with the Roman signet. And, and they provided a guard of soldiers to watch the tomb. Now, the soldiers at the tomb, if you study Roman history, they would not go to sleep for fear of death. So when they witnessed the empty tomb... They informed the Jewish leaders about what they had seen, that the stone was moved and they saw Christ come out. And also think about this. During the crucifixion of Jesus, the apostles were cowards. Let's just accept John. They abandoned and they denied that they even knew Jesus. But these apostles who did not even believe in the resurrection, all of a sudden, these cowardly men, they have the courage You want us to believe that they have the courage to pass by Roman guards at a tomb, silently move a large stone that weighed about 2,000 pounds, then rob Jesus' body and leave undetected as Roman soldiers were there guarding the tomb. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. And not only that, these Roman soldiers were intact. They weren't all bruised up and beat up or, you know what I mean? They would have went, uh, if you know anything about Roman soldiers, they would have, you know, they would have went down with their, with their shields and swords in hand. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But this whole story, uh, you know, the modernists, you know, have had their way, uh, uh, you know, in the church for so, so many years. And um, no matter what they do or how they try to undermine our faith, you know, even I hate to say it like this, but th- but this article to me kind of rings a little, has a little slight modernist overtone yeah. in this. Yeah, I get as, it. Yeah. As, yeah. Especially when, you know, uh, you know, and he says, uh, you know, when he ta- in the beginning of the article, when he talks about, you know, the majority of it's almost like survey, you know, we took a survey and the majority of people feel that Jesus really existed, you know, I see for, that, you know, yeah. And for us, just there is absolutely no doubt about it. And I'm just reminded of sacred scripture that says, blessed are those who believe uh, who have not seen yet still believe you know yeah. um yep go ahead just yeah well i'll tell you one thing the empty tomb of jesus christ is the most visited piece of real estate on planet earth 
You got yep. from about 2 million to about 4 million people a year that go visit the empty tomb in Jerusalem called the Holy Sepulcher, which is in the custody of the Catholic Church by Franciscans. In fact, oh, I thought, anybody... I thought Calvary Chapel was running that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If anybody wants to go to, yeah, to Jerusalem with me, I'm going to be going October 6th to the 16th. Go to my website, jesseromero.com. I'm going to be doing a Holy Land pilgrimage October 6th to the 16th. You can sign up if you'd like to go with me. Uh, and trust me, it's going to be a Bible study. I'm going to have a Bible in my hand as we're walking from one city to another, reading what happened from the New Testament as we're in these individual cities. It's going to be a Bible study like you've never seen. But once again, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ is the most visited piece of real estate on planet Earth. Why? Because people intuitively know that something phenomenal, amazing happened on that spot. Namely, the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Son of Joseph, Son of Mary, rose from the dead. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yes. And, uh, and because, Christ is, because Jesus Christ lives, the Bible says, we will live also. Did you catch that? Because Jesus Christ lives, John 14, 19, we will live also. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, some strange things that are happening with uh, the cancel culture. They want to cancel our thought. They want to control our thoughts, our speech. And uh, this is just part of the new world order. We'll be right back. Now. Back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Happy Holy Octave of Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One last comment I want to make about the resurrection before we move to another topic is if you noticed, every time we speak about a great, a great dead person, let's just say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, John Paul II, we'll say the late, great John Paul II, the late, great George Washington, the late, great Abraham Lincoln. Have you ever noticed that nobody ever says the late, great Jesus Christ? You know why we never speak in those terms? Because he's alive. Also, something else that's worth pointing out. So people say, well, well, big deal. Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. Thousands of people were crucified on crosses by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Assyrians and the Romans. And that's true. That's true. Th thousands. Well, <laughs> what makes what makes Jesus different from the other ones? You know, how come we don't know the names of anybody else who's been crucified on crosses by Persians, Assyrians, Greeks, and Romans? We don't know their names. You know why? Well, they're all dead, first of all, and we don't know their names. Why? Because none of them rose from the dead. That's mm -hmm. why. Yeah, and not only that, none of them even told beforehand that they would raise from rise from the dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk about uh, the new world or a strange new world that we live in, the way they uh, the left woke left wants to control how we we think and speak. And I'll tell you where this error came from. This error came, came from and it quotes here in the article, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy in 1992, uh, 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 a modernist Catholic, he said something that has given the woke left all the ammunition they need, the transgenders, the homosexuals, 
the woke left, the liberals. Look at what he, he, a Supreme Court decision that he gave called Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey in 1992. He said this, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own existence, one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, close quote. Anthony Kennedy, with that statement, just sold the farm. He just he just gave license to moral relativism, uh, to error, you know, being held uh, right right next to truth. That statement right there has opened up the Pandora's box to moral relativism and secular humanism in the United States of America, and we're seeing it more and more right now with the whole transgender movement, where you're saying you got to call me by this pronoun. Uh, you got I'm a boy today. No, tomorrow I'm a girl. All of this ability to define your own concept of existence, it comes from the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. And once again, Jess, we have a... A fake a, Catholic. Uh, yeah, well, he's a, a Catholic who's not well-formed uh, is a dangerous person <laughs> and can be. Just look at Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and the list goes on, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the, the article says individuals have the right to define for themselves their identity and more. In this single sentence, Anthony Kennedy, uh, you know, sent us on the road to the end of traditional freedoms were, was made clear. If each person has the right, the right at the heart of liberty to create their own everything, even the concept of the universe, then any encroachment on their self-generated definitions is to be considered a violation of their rights. They have property mm-hmm. rights in whatever they feel about themselves to be true. This is expressive individualism. Tolerance was never going to be enough for the left. To tolerate someone is to, dis- is to disapprove of them, but allow their continued existence. Recognition in the old-fashioned sense was never going to be enough for the left either. It now must mean, it, it must now mean affirmation. Equality was never going to be enough for the left superiority and dominance is the objective today. So Mm -hmm. turning these concepts on their head was always the objective of the left. This can be seen in Herbert Marcus in his essay, Repressive Tolerance, where he writes this, quote, the essay examines the idea of tolerance in our advanced industrial society. The conclusion reached is that the realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance towards prevailing policies, attitudes, opinions, and the extension of tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions which are outlawed or suppressed. How to achieve mm-hmm. this end? It must begin with stopping the words and images would feed this consciousness. To be sure, which, mm-hmm. this is censorship. Even pre-censorship, but openly directed against the more or less hidden censorship that permeates the free media. Paul, you want to pick it up from there? Yeah, you know, Jess, you said a lot there, and I I just want to make sure the audience gets it. But so I just want to go back and reread that last thing you read. This essay examines the idea of tolerance in an advanced industrial society. The conclusion reached is that the realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance toward prevailing policies, mm-hmm. attitudes, opinions, and the extension 
of tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions which are outlawed or suppressed. So these, you know, so so these people that want to bring forth uh, these uh, suppressed ideas, uh, you know, that are uh, not tolerated in society, uh, they attack, you know, uh, the the status quo and tear it down so that they can uh, they can have their way, so to speak. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It is all, it, yeah. It always had to result in a loss of freedom of speech and therefore inherently a loss of freedom of religion. There it returning is. Returning to, yeah, returning to Truman. If we are, as Justice Kennedy wrote, free to create our own reality about ourselves and even the universe, then anything that stands in the way, whether thought, word, or deed, is a violation of rights. Pronouns and wedding cakes are legitimate cause for confrontation. As those who do not use my preferred pronouns or bake a cake for my alphabet soup wedding are violating my property rights in my imagined self. A Christian objects to homosexuality as a set of sexual practices, but this is irrelevant. To object is a denial of the gay man as a person. His person has been erased. One cannot hate the sin, but love the sinner. The sin is the identity of the sinner. The mm -hmm. two cannot be separated. In a word where inner psychology dominates, in a world where inner psychology dominates how we think of ourselves, then feelings to become uh, very important in how we conceptual conceptualize harm. I'll say that again. Then feelings too become very important in how we conceptual conceptualize harm, which is why restricting religious views is a subset of the bigger desire to restrict speech. And here, another Supreme Court ruling is relevant with ramifications that may or may not have been intended, nevertheless, are coming into play. Go ahead, Jess. In Brandenburg versus Ohio, 1969, it was ruled that speech likely to cause imminent lawless action was not protected. <clears throat> How might this be applied when one has the right to invent and reinvent oneself continuously and to not affirm another in their, in in their invention is a violation of their rights, even to be considered violent? When violence moves from the physical and financial to the psychological Everything changes. Mm. When the words said affect the psychological condition of another, this is violence. Such speech is a lawless action. The, law, uh, the lawless action is inherent in the speech. The existence of the traditional Christian is a threat to the person who identifies as transgender. The person who teaches Western civilization is a threat to the person whose identity is framed by the repudiation of the colonial past. And such threats cannot be tolerated by the woke left. They are, or soon will be, illegal. Which leads to a quote by Heinrich Hein, who said, quote, Where they have burned books, they will end in burning human beings. Close quote. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they're talking about Bibles, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. That That's the and book that they want to burn, because that's where... That's where divine law is revealed to us 
And by the way, God, God has also given us natural law. You don't even need the Bible to know that homosexuality is wrong. Natural law tells you that. But again, ultimately, the left, the woke left would like to burn all the Bibles. And just to sh- if you don't think they, they have an inkling to do that, when Barack was, Obama was president, I want to remind everybody that he ordered all four branches of the military. He said when they were over in the Middle East and Afghanistan and Iraq, he said, if you find a Bible in any restaurant, library, public coffee shop, he ordered the soldiers to confiscate Bibles, bring them to the fobs at the end of the night, the Ford operating base, bring them. They would make a big bonfire per orders of the commander in chief, Barack Obama, and every night they would burn Bibles in the U.S. military fobs. So if you don't think that the woke left wants to burn Bibles, Barack Obama already was a precursor to that. Wow. I didn't, I, I never knew that, Jess, but that's... Uh, right on the internet. That article's oh, right on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how the mighty have fallen. Does that surprise you? <laughs> well, no, it doesn't surprise me. And, uh, but it just, it's just one more... Uh, you know, one more, one more blow, you know, well, yeah, Jess, uh, this is amazing. This article and the author of this article, how he just nails it. And uh, they want to control everything we even think. We're not free now to have religious conviction that, uh, that doesn't go along with the society as a whole and what their viewpoint is like so they have made homosexuality and transgenderism and all these other things that they want to force on society protected classes and so uh we have a clash going on between our freedom uh to worship and uh, and to exercise our freedom of religion versus their human right so to speak, to exist, right? They have identity, you know, and of yeah, we'll, course- we'll pick this up. We'll continue on this on the next segment. Jesus 911, two-man car, stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Jesus 911, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hey, the woke left not only wants to control our speech, but they want to control our thoughts as well. And uh, everything about the fact that they want to control what what we speak and what we think, it's all because of the sexual revolution. It's mm-hmm. because the woke left goes from one perverse lifestyle and action to another, and they want us to shut up and accept it, and basically to say, uh, we don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about these matters, and we have to, yeah. we'll beat you up. We'll just, we'll just, yeah. we'll just go ballistic on you. We'll just become yeah. violent and attack you, and don't think that yeah. they won't. And Jess, and why do they want to control it? Well, sacred scripture tells us. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, you know? So this is why they can't even tolerate our our, our, our faith or what we believe. They want to control everything. That's right. And, and, and let me tell you, and, and give you an, before we move on to the next topic, why sex outside of 
the, the, the monogamous man and woman sacramental union is sinful. The, think about the high priest in the Ark of the Covenant. Every man mm-hmm. is the high priest of his home, and the wife is the Ark of the Covenant. Or I'll, I'll give you a more New Testament analogy. Every man is the, is the priest of his home, and every wife is the golden tabernacle that you find in the center, should be in the center of every Catholic church covered with a veil. The mm-hmm. only person that's supposed to enter, approach and enter and open that tabernacle is the priest. That's Amen. the husband. When you have the janitor, you have Miss Garcia, Miss O'Connor, you know, uh, you know, m- m- Mr. Uh, you know, Matt. Sancho. Yeah. When you have everything, everybody going up and opening up the tabernacle that's not a priest, you're defiling that personal relationship, that monogamous relationship between the priest and the tabernacle. The tabernacle yeah. is supposed to be opened by the priest. Yes. And, it re- and it reveals to us the life-giving power of the Eucharist. That, that's the same analogy. Any sexually perverted acts is defiling that tabernacle, is making yep. that tabernacle profane. The only thing that God has given us that's consistent with a clean, ordered life is the man is the priest, the woman, the wife is the tabernacle, only the man's supposed to enter the wife, only the man's supposed to open the wife. That's it. Anything else outside of that relationship is disordered. Yeah, and that's why, Jess, uh, you and I had a conversation recently where we're talking about um, uh, the demonic attachments to like, let's say prostitution. When a woman is, you know, is, is prostitution where she's constantly, uh, you know, uh, right. having, right. Yeah. yeah, having men, all yeah. types of men, different men come in and defile her like that. There's, there's a demonic component there because Satan understands this, uh, uh, Type the, the this typology represented yes. between uh, the man and his wife. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and you can even t- and you can even take that further and say homosexuality. You know, and the idea that a homosexual marriage is somehow a valid marriage, and then the you know then then the most intimate place within that marriage, that the holy of holies, so to speak, within that relationship would be you know the sexual union between the husband and his wife. Well, having a so-called sexual union, you know, uh, uh, you know, in something, you know, uh, in in such a, a. uh, an offensive way to God, you know, as, as homosexual sex, uh, male sex is, uh, is an affront to God. Yeah. Because you're putting the, you're putting the wrong parts in the wrong place. You're going against natural law and divine law. And there's always consequences. I'll just talk about on a natural level, HIV, AIDS, anal cancer, monkeypox. Uh, in the homosexual community, you find more people that have HIV and AIDS in the homosexual community, you have more more homosexuals have anal cancer and die of anal cancer. In the homosexual community, you have a new disease called monkeypox. And within the homosexual community, you have more STDs than amongst heterosexual men. And so just based on natural law, I gave no biblical argument. Based on science and medicine, you can see that's, that's an intrinsically dangerous lifestyle to the human body. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. Hey, let's move on to another topic. These guys are these guys are my heroes, Paul. I've heard about them years and years ago. They're called the the Forty Martyrs of Sebast. 
Mm-hmm. The 40 martyrs of Sabas, uh, these, uh, these were s- soldiers in the, in the Roman 12th legion. They were called the Fulminata or the lightning or the thundering legion. Uh, Sabas is modern day Turkey, by the way. So some believe this incredible legion of Roman soldiers was given that name by Marcus Aurelius after he experienced the the miraculous rain event in 169 AD, according to St. Basil's homily and the 40 martyrs delivered 50 years after their martyrdom. So these guys were an elite fighting squad and they were all followers of Christ, but they were they were part of the Roman legion, but they were elite Catholic fighting squad. And again, they would pray before battles and miracles would happen. So everybody knew about them, even the Roman emperor. So the story goes, these holy martyrs suffered at Sebast, again, modern day Turkey in the lesser Armenia, under the emperor Licinius in 320 AD. They were in different countries, but they enrolled in the same troop. They were called the Thundering Legion, and they were very famous, again, for praying and miracles happening during battle. And they were also famous for their, their military victories. These guys were just, these guys were just a, a, a well-prepared uh, you know, troops under the Roman legions. But one day on the orders of the Emperor Licinius, for all to sacrifice to the emperor, these 40 soldiers... They went boldly to their commander, Lysias, and they said, hey, we're Christians and uh, we can't do that. We're not going to abandon our holy religion no matter what happens to us. Well, the governor wasn't really happy with with their with their uh, failure to worship the Roman emperor. And so the governor had them all arrested, had them whipped. Their sides were opened up with iron hooks. The governor was highly offended at their courage and that liberty of speech, which they, they kept speaking out against them as they were being tortured. So he devised an extraordinary kind of death for these 40 soldiers of Sebast, which was going to be slow and severe. And he hoped that he would break their constancy and their faith in Christ. So what did he do? <clears throat> it was cold in Armenia. It was in March. It was toward the end of winter. And there was also at that time a severe frost. Under the wall of the town stood a pond that was that was f- frozen so hard that it could bear walking upon with safety. So the Roman judge ordered the, these 40 uh, soldiers, who are now saints, to be exposed naked on the ice. And in order to tempt them to more, to, to more powerfully renounce their faith in Christ, they put a warm bath. It was prepared at a small distance from the frozen pond for any of these soldiers company to go to, to go there and basically to renounce their faith and jump into this hot bath instead of freezing to death. But the, the martyrs on hearing their sentence, they ran joyfully to their place of execution without waiting to be stripped. They undressed themselves, encouraging one another in the, in the same manner as is usual among soldiers in military expeditions attended with hardships and and dangers saying that one bad night would purchase them a happy eternity. So the guards in the meantime seized not to persuade them to sacrifice the whole of the number. Only one had the misfortune to be overcome and to betray his faith. A sentinel was warning, was warming himself near the bath while he was attending. He had a vision of the blessed spirits descending from heaven on the martyrs. So the guard 
being struck with the celestial vision and the apostate's desertion, this guard was converted on the spot. He saw angels coming down upon these martyrs and he saw the reward of these martyrs in heaven. And so the soldier threw off his clothes and placed himself in his stead amongst the 39 Roman soldiers that were dying, uh, uh, frozen to death. So in the morning, the judge ordered both that, that, that both those that were dead with the cold and those that were still alive to be laid on carriages and cast in a fire. Their bodies were burned and their ashes thrown into the river, but the Christians secretly carried off or purchased part of them with money. The deaths of these 40 soldiers, these Catholic martyrs, have attracted veneration and artistic representation from the time of their martyrdom until this, until this present day. These were very young men, only one of them was married, and their icy deaths was the last famous mass martyrdom of Christians. And so I pray, 40 martyrs of Sebast, pray for us. Paul Comet, you're a military man. Uh, well, again, uh, it, uh, it's amazing, Jess, to me that uh, these men would have uh, the grace and the strength to do that. But we know that God, God's grace, uh, God will supply that grace for martyrdom. So uh, uh, what a testimony, what an example. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'd also heard that story. And it's just a, a wonderful story about uh, people who who understand what the faith is all about and, the, and their willingness to die for that faith. And by the way, it just goes to show you what we as Catholics believe that, you know, that suffering isn't to, you know, to not just su suffering. There is a purpose in suffering and that that that. That as we unite our sufferings to Christ, uh, that there is a benefit to the body. There is a benefit. There are graces that are that, that are flowing, uh, and uh, and one of those graces, as you saw, that 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 man uh, converted on the spot. Yes, I'm telling you that when you look at the Catholic Church, this story, the, the forty martyrs of Sebast, Saint Longinus, yeah. Paul, our church is so rich in history and martyrs and heroes. Uh, yeah. This is why it's important for us as Catholics to read the lives of these saints. These stories aren't in the Bible. These things happen after Scripture. Uh, yeah. And for the last 2,000 years, the stories of the saints will inspire you, and it will give you a baptism of boldness. It will give you, uh, it will, it will give you a, a faith that's uh, out of this world. Paul, come, yeah. last parting thoughts? Yeah, the communion of saints. So uh, I just want to reiterate, read the saints, learn about the saints, and be encouraged, people. That's right. Listening to Jesus 911, up next, you're going to hear more from the big guy, Gary Machuda, coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. But as for us, we are EOW, end of watch for our radio show, the podcast, but we're always on duty for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're always on duty for the Blessed Virgin Mary. See you next time. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. He is risen. He is risen indeed.